go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. Fun to start new things, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except for diets, very good. Yes. Um, yeah. The, at the end of at the end of John, it's kind of funny. At the end of John, he said, "You know, if we wrote all the things that Jesus did, if we wrote them all down, they wouldn't fill." And then he went and wrote another book. He's like, "And this is all, but hey, there's another one." So, well, First John is is uh, the book we're starting. We'll be studying through the summer, and um, let's just start the right way. You know, let's start start with the word itself. We will read the first four verses of John's first letter, and then we'll pray for our time okay. once more. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Okay. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this book, this letter to your church. We pray that we would have receptive hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would meet with us here through the words of your friend, John. Um, we can read right here and see why he wrote the letter. Lord, we pray that the reason he wrote the letter would be the same uh, reason for us reading it, that we would have fellowship with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Um, we're, we're here because we want our joy to be full. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would minister these realities to us. Meet with us here, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, you should be, see already, as most of you have been with us through our study in the Gospel of John, there's a lot of familiar phrases already. It, so, it sounds like a rerun. You know, he's, he's mentioning the life and the light and the beginning and, and, and fellowship with God and all of these things. And these verses, this, this introduction paragraph of 1 John, reads almost like poetry. And that's kind of the way John writes sometimes. John's writings ring with theology and praise and, and kind of an invitation that you find in a work of art, really. John's writings, writings they invite in a special kind of winsome way. He does not primarily demand allegiance, although he makes it clear that this is what is required of you and this is where he'll lead you. But John writes about these high and lofty beauties in order to draw the eyes of his readers heavenward, knowing that such a beatific vision will have supernatural lasting effects. So look at how he begins. He begins in the beginning, just like he, he did uh, when he wrote his gospel account, right? Uh, it says, that which was from the beginning. This should be familiar for you. Uh, even if you missed uh, John, uh, and, but you started the Bible, this is how it begins, right? In the beginning. Um, this was, a, this was a, a major theme in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John writes this major league theology, top shelf stuff. Jesus is and always has been and always will be God of very God. 
And he starts right, right there reminding you of what he's already said. He wrote how Jesus created all things and then diving into what Paul would call the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifest in the flesh. This is also how John, you know, remember John wrote, uh, began his, his gospel. The, the flesh came and dwelt among us. Or sorry, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 has a lifetime worth of truth that you can soak in and feed on and rejoice in and worship around. And it's that same tone that started the gospel that now starts this letter. John makes it extremely clear that he is speaking of eternal truths. That which was from the beginning. He's not selling his message short in any way. The expectation for this letter should be way up here because John is writing about, again, top shelf stuff. That which is from the beginning. And then John makes it very clear with maybe more words than are necessary to simply get the point across. He says, I know what I'm talking about. But he says it, uh, you know, a few different ways from a few different angles. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The word, again, echoing his, his introduction to his gospel. The word is God. We know what the word is from John's gospel. Jesus is the living word of God. He is the word of life. And John says that he has heard Jesus. He's saying that he saw Jesus. Amen. He's saying that he looked at Jesus and touched Jesus with his own hands. He is a witness of the resurrection. Now, this statement and the way he makes it could serve two separate purposes. In 1 Corinthians, Paul defends his apostleship because there were some people saying Paul's not a real disciple or apostle. He's not a real apostle because he wasn't one of the original 12. And Paul, instead of taking the, the low road saying, yeah, how did, how did the 12th one work out for you? Is that really the standard you want to set? No, he says, no, these are my qualifications. I really am an apostle. And he defends his apostleship by saying, I saw the Lord also, indicating that being an eyewitness of the resurrection is a requirement for official Amen. apostleship. Peter uh, thought the same thing in Acts chapter 1. They choose a replacement for Judas. They're like, 11 just doesn't have the ring. That 12 does. Um, we're supposed to, you know, rule the 12 tribes of Israel on 12 thrones. We need another guy. Um, they considered the firsthand knowledge essential. They say we have to pick someone who's been with us the whole time, who's seen this stuff, who's a witness of the resurrection. So John could be saying, I am one of the apostles. I have authority. I saw it all. So you should take the rest of this letter very seriously because, again, I know what I'm talking about. But we've seen in John's gospel that he likes double meanings. Okay, he likes layers. He likes to give some texture with some, um, some give to it where you can kind of have two different meanings and then meet in the middle and say like, oh, that was clever. There's poetry again. There's rhymes in John's gospel, theological rhyming. And I find it interesting to note that he says, we have heard, seen, looked at, and touched these things or this person, this word of life. It seems like the we there is the apostles but then he says that he's writing so that you, the reader, would have fellowship with us, the apostles, and then clarifies that the fellowship of the us, the fellowship with us, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. When John says, we have seen, heard, seen, and touched, 
yeah, he's saying, I was there at the cross. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there at the empty tomb. But more than that, he is inviting people into the same kind of experience-based fellowship with God himself. He's writing to the church, not unbelievers. And he's saying, guys, we've seen this. Like, we have seen Christ. We've touched him. Now, at this point in time, it's very likely that John is the last living eyewitness of Christ. So really, if he's saying we... You know, they're saying, you and, and who else? Like, all the other witnesses are, are dead at this point. Jesus says, no, we have seen Christ. Have, have we not? We've handled Christ. Have we not? The experience-based fellowship is one of the themes of the book of 1 John. Fellowship with God, fellowship with each other on the foundation of Christ is one of the major themes of 1 John. And it was also one of the themes in the life of John himself. Now, I'm not going to get another chance to do an introduction message to 1 John. So can we talk about John a little bit right now? Uh, it seems like now's the time. I think we should talk about John a little bit. And I know we've been studying the gospel of John for well over a year, so you may feel like you already know the guy and you know what you need to know. But, but actually, this is one of the reasons I wanted to study these letters after the gospel so that we can continue in what we've already started in. But John, as you know, is not the subject of the gospel. So he can rightfully get lost in the story. Also, the details that we do know about John from the Gospels, which we'll talk about in a bit, are stories about John when he was young. Well, this letter was written much, much later. Um, some of the, these are some of the last books of the New Testament that were written. John is around 90 at this point. So I want to become reacquainted with John, since we're going to be spending time in a book that he wrote. Uh, he's the author of the gospel that we just finished studying and the author of this letter that we're just starting. If you get a letter in the mail, the return address matters. Uh, knowing who is writing you the letter helps you understand the letter. Okay, if PG&E sends you a letter saying you owe them you know, a few hundred bucks, you pay it. If I do that, I never get any responses. So the return address matters, right? You need to know who you're getting the letter from. Uh, now, there's, there's been a shift and how scholars try to understand literature and, and even ancient texts in the past hundred years or so that has not been altogether positive. There's an idea in many circles, academic circles, that the writer of any work is really, really invisible, maybe even unnecessary. In other words, when you read a book, the book means whatever it means to you. This is not just in uh, liberal theology and biblical scholarship. This isn't reading literature uh, at all. They're like, well, what did it mean to you? Well, that's what it means. That's a valid meaning. The meaning of the words are not what the author intended, but rather whatever the reader receives. In this case, knowing the author doesn't really matter at all. Uh, I, I watched an interview with an author of a, of a book that I read years ago, and he was pushing the sale of the, their new book, uh, which was a, a series of uh, essays, not a novel, but... Um, and a question was asked, basically, like, how to read the book. Like, do you read it in order or topically or whatever? And the author said this. He says, you can read it however you like. I am very over authors prescribing reading experiences. The book belongs to you. Use it however it can be useful. And then he went on to describe exactly how he wrote the book with the intention of organizing it in a certain pattern on purpose. And you're like, man, uh, you can see the assumption that you read for yourself and you are the authority of understanding and then you see the assumption crumble under its own weight because it cannot be true that the reader is the authority on what the writer wants to say. We are not the, the authority of this book. Ultimately, neither is John, but he is an authority. 
Well, that should be obvious, clear, obviously clear when reading a letter, because it's someone else writing something they want to say. The scripture as a whole has been uh, subjected to the same kind of subjective reading. You read it for what you want to understand instead of what the author has intended to communicate. We reject that philosophy of Bible study. The author matters. In 1 John, there are two authors. And in order to understand what they are trying to communicate, it will help if we know something about both of them. The first author is John the Apostle, the second is God himself, and we believe that both of them were saying the same thing in this letter. Now fortunately for us, the, the first author is going to be able to teach us about the second author. First thing I want you to know about the author John is that he was Jesus Christ's best friend, and this matters in how you read 1 John. That at least gives him some authority also on the subject matter of this eternal word that he has touched, seen, handled. Let me ask you this. If someone wants to get to know you, uh, if I wanted to get to know you really well, but without talking to you personally, and you could send me to someone else who knows you really well, and I could talk to them about you, you know, who, who would you send me to? Hopefully someone that likes you because you want, you want it to be you know, a positive thing, but also someone that, that knows you really well. Someone that knows all the things there are to know about you. It's not just a friend. You'd want it to be someone who has been with you a long time, spent hours, years by your side, seen you in all sorts of situations. You know, what best friend or closest friend would know all about you? Not just what you think about yourself, but maybe what you're really like and you don't know about yourself. If you asked Jesus, if you asked Jesus, who on earth would really know you? Who is your closest friend who I can talk to to get an understanding of what you, Jesus, are like? He very well might have pointed you to John. It's like, oh, John, John knows me. He's, he's seen me in, through everything. If you want to get to know Jesus, which we do, that's why we're here. The first and best way to do do that is to talk to him directly and that's something that you can and should do but you can talk to Jesus while you can talk to Jesus yourself and know him yourself you can also learn about people by talking to the people around them if you follow that strategy if you want to know about Jesus talk to John John knows about Jesus and we're gonna study John in order to learn about Jesus and this is not somehow a step down from knowing Jesus without the middleman so to speak it's not a watered-down version of Jesus or anything. Remember, there is a blessing for those who believe and have not seen. And one of those blessings may very well be knowing Christ through the lens of another person like you that was saved by grace through faith. Seeing Jesus through John's relationship with Jesus is not seeing a fuzzy, out-of-focus Jesus. It's quite the opposite, actually. When you see Jesus interact with another person, you are seeing him in focus. C.S. Lewis wrote about this, actually, in regards to his uh, friendship with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and, and the other guys. They were very good friends, uh, but rarely would they do things just the two of them. They, were, they would usually spend time with their other friends, Charles William, uh, Williams, Owen Barfield, and the other Inklings. And he concludes that this friendship of at least three is really a true friendship. Because you learn to love your friend, not just face-to-face, -face, where your friend is just directed at you, but you get to learn what they look like in profile as well as they address someone else. And you are able to love them then in a different way by seeing how they deal with your other friends. When they laugh at someone else's joke, 
You learn about them in ways you couldn't have if they only laughed at yours or if they only laughed at you. When you see a friend show kindness to someone else, you appreciate them in ways you could not appreciate them if you were the only object of their kindness. Does that make sense? Yeah. And C.S. Lewis, he goes on to say this. He says, in fact, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven, to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, but we're among them, increases the fruition which each has of God. In other words, you're going to appreciate God in heaven because you are in the multitude that cannot be numbered. If it was just you and him in heaven, you would be lacking something of his love. We're studying John, not because we think John is, you know, the ultimate saint or anything like that. We're studying John because we want to know Jesus. And we can do that by seeing what Jesus is to John. And I believe that in this exercise, we'll fall more in love with Jesus and become more aware of the fellowship that we have with Christ's other friends, even John the Apostle. So let's talk about John some more, or actually start. John is thought to be one of the youngest disciples out of the 12, probably in his mid-teens. Okay, and while Peter, who was almost certainly the oldest disciple, gets all the flack, right, for being impetuous and impulsive, it is John who we see just as much showing a rashness in his behavior. Peter, of course, gets the spotlight and all the attention when it comes to making those rushed decisions. We've seen that in the Gospel of John. Peter's the first in the tomb. Peter swims to the shore. Uh, but please notice, Peter is always with John. Why? Because that part of Peter is really appealing to the teenager named John. Because they have a lot in common. Peter and John are paired up. Remember, it was John also who left everything and followed Jesus on the shores of Galilee. That seems like a decision that should have had some more planning in it, don't you think? He leaves the nets, he leaves the boats, he leaves his father, and he's all the way in 100% of the time. That's John. It says that the fishermen forsook all and followed him. He's all in. He's just an all in kind of guy. You know people like this. You might be this kind of person and this can be redeemed. Take hope. Um, but you, there's no dimmer switch, right? There's no dimmer switch with some people. Full speed ahead. And I think John was like that. And this can be a really good thing as long as you're going all in in the right direction. And we have examples in the Gospels of this impulsiveness being misguided and Jesus going, oh, no, 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 no. And then hooking him back in and pointing him in the right direction. Remember, it was John and his brother James who are the guys who ask special permission to burn down the Samaritan villages with fire from heaven. That's rashness. Saint John? Really? John doesn't come out shining 100% in all four Gospels. One of the ways we can tell God wrote the Bible and not just the people in the Bible is that the people in the Bible don't come off looking great. John and James, these brothers, these sons of Thunder. That's what Jesus calls them. Sons of Thunder. Do you think Jesus has a nickname for you? Mm, that kind of stings. If so, do you think that nickname is flattering? Are nicknames ever flattering? Don't answer that. Just pray that. James and John, Sons of Thunder. They're like, that's like the names for like tag team wrestlers, right? <laughs> like sons of thunder. And when they ask for fire from heaven, 
They don't ask Jesus to send fire down from heaven. Say, God, deal with those people. Like David prays, you know, Lord, strike them down. No, they say, please let me do it. Please let us do it. It would be so cool. They want the power from God to destroy villages. Now we laugh at this, but Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you don't know what kind of spirit you are of. John, the John that wrote the gospel we just finished and the letter that we're about to start is a guy who is willing to see, eager to see God destroy entire cities. Not really a pastoral heart. Now this arrogance continues on as James and John in Mark chapter 10, they go on in a scheme to reserve seats on the right and left of the throne of God in heaven. You got to get early. You know, you got to reserve your seats early for a good, good spot. And they're like, kingdom of heaven's coming. We want to be, we're first in line. We're the first to ask, right and left. And listen to how they do it. Mark chapter 10 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Can I read that again? <laughs> Jesus, dear Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us the stuff we want. Who has the gall to ask for that? John does. James and John do. They go to Jesus and say, in essence, okay, so we want some things. We've got some great ideas. Uh, we've drawn up the plans. We've got a mission statement. And we need a good assistant. And you would be the ideal candidate. Um, because, I mean, look. Look at how great you are getting stuff done. You're hired. And so here's the thing, Jesus, assistant. You do what we want. And this is what they ask for, thrones on either side of Jesus. Now, we know that their mother was involved in this request, so this attitude is really in the whole family. Just the whole family's messed up. Um, but think of this. Think of this. Imagine that they read Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and these angelic creatures shout, holy, 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 around the clock. And James and John read that, and they say, you know what this scene needs? more chairs us and since we're humble we'll let jesus sit in the middle jesus says no arrogant yeah rash we would call this high self-esteem john did not suffer from any identity problems low self-esteem this is john and jesus loves him like the best I think the more well-behaved disciples, if there were any, might have rolled their eyes at the stuff James and John did on a fairly regular basis. I think they might have been embarrassed to have James and John tag along and say the stupid things they kept on saying. You know, it's like they're, they're the they're older disciples, you know, 19. And then this little, you know, this 15-year-old kid named John is one lightning powers. And you're like... <laughs> Overbearing, he's young, overbearing, rash, passionate, possibly violent thunder kid. And he meets and he meets Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus says, possibly with a shake of his head, he says, Man, I love this kid. I love this guy. Jesus loves John. He's identified as the one Jesus loved. Jesus loved him more than some of the other guys who who are probably more well behaved. Now, let me ask you this question. On the heels of the question of, does Jesus have a nickname for you, which you're just going to have to sort out for yourself, do you think Jesus would have enjoyed hanging out with you when you were a kid? 
Now, I mean, Jesus loves the little children, so you know the answer has to be yes. Okay, of course he does. Suffer the little children to come to me. We know the answer. How about the not-so-little children, though? Like, when you were 15, 16, or however old you were when you were at your stupidest. Um, it's possible that you're there in that time frame right now. Um, don't, don't throw that option out. Those of you who take stand, stand, take heed lest you fall. But can you imagine, can you imagine Jesus coming to you when you were making the worst decisions of your life, the not so funny ones, okay? Can you imagine Jesus coming to you then, or however old you were when you thought you knew everything and obviously didn't, and then saying, I love that guy. He gets to sit next to me. Okay, next time we have dinner, he's next to me. I would argue that Jesus would love to spend time with the worst version of you and that he is intentional about changing you from that person into an image of himself. Now remember, John, John, the wild, reckless John becomes Jesus's closest friend, the kind of friend that becomes family. Remember Christ's words on the cross, John, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. John, who thought to ask for fire from heaven so the judgment of God uh, could, could come and crush his enemies, saw the judgment of God on Christ. John, who wanted a throne, was changed by the cross. Jesus changes John. And John is so drastically, dramatically changed. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine John in the way that I just described him. His past life is dim in comparison with what Jesus made him into. Now I asked you who your best friend is, who, who would know you the most, the best, inside and out, and I suggest that John is that person for Jesus. Here's another question. Do you have a friend that you would ask to take care of your family if something happened to you? For Jesus, that was John. I don't have to assume that. That's literally what happens at the cross. That's the kind of closeness that developed between these two men which again points us to the importance of the authorship of this letter. If we are reading someone else's mail in order to get to know Jesus, then it really matters who the letter is from, and it's from Jesus' best friend, the, the disciple he loved, the adopted son of Mary, the disciple who went through a serious change and one who was made family. First John is a letter that is written by a changed man, and it matters who you get a letter from. As you, as you read 1 John, you are reading a letter from a person who has been fundamentally changed, who was one way, who is now another way, and he wants those he loves to experience the same change. This changed life happened because John spent time with Jesus. John spent time with Jesus and was changed from someone who was passionate for the wrong things into someone who was passionate about the right thing. And he went from someone wishing annihilation on his enemies, not even his enemies, just people that irritated him, from someone wanting glory for himself, the throne, to a person whose entire doctrine could be summarized by the simple command, little children, love one another. He's a different person. It's night and day. John had spent time with Jesus who loved him, and he was changed from a reckless person known for being a wild, impulsive son of thunder into a person known for their Christ-like love. When John was young, he did things he regretted. When he was an old man, he simplified his life to be focused only on the love of God. There are only five chapters in this book. John uses the word love 40 times. It's hard to miss. First, John is the fruit 
of John's relationship with Jesus. And in many ways, 1 John is about relationship. 1 John is about fellowship. We read that in, in our text. Of course, there's, that's the only context where so many mentions of love would make sense. Love is not a feeling that exists in your heart when you're by yourself. Love requires an object. Relationship is implied. So let's talk about why John wrote this letter in the first place. Look back at 1 John 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John, the author of this letter, is welcoming his readers into fellowship with God. That's important. The Holy Spirit, the author, the other author of this book, has been sent to you to do exactly the same thing. The Holy Spirit is here to draw you into this kind of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, the kind of fellowship that changes you. This is why we're studying this book, because we, as the people of God, desire to come into a more complete fellowship with God. Uh, from this first primary purpose come at least uh, a, a few other reasons for writing this letter. We'll look at, we'll look at some. In verse 4, John says he's writing this, these things that your joy may be full. There's a reason for reading this book. There's a reason that John wrote this book. He wants you to have fellowship and he wants you to have joy. Some manuscripts say that our joy may be full. I think the ambiguity fits nicely with John's subtleties. The bottom line is that fellowship with God brings joy. And John wants you to have it. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fellowship, that's where the joy is. As you press into the presence of John's friend Jesus, joy awaits you in that fellowship. Then in, in chapter 2 verse 1, 1 John 2 verse 1, John says this, um, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, at first glance, this may seem like a very different reason to write a letter, right? Wasn't the letter that we would have joy and have fellowship? Now he's saying the reason for the letter is that you wouldn't sin. It's the same reason, guys. John writes so that you can have fellowship and joy. The fellowship with Christ and sinning less look a whole lot alike. Sin disrupts fellowship. And fellowship prevents sin. Joy in Christ is a powerful weapon against temptations. And that joy comes from being with Him, enjoying the fellowship with Him. John is leading his readers towards one person, Jesus. And in Jesus there is perfect fellowship. And in Jesus there is perfect joy. And it is in that pursuit of God that we do as Hebrews 12.1 demands. We lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And we run with endurance the race that is set before us. The, the race is to Jesus. He is the finish line. John is writing so that those sins that so easily ensnare loosen their grip in light of the glory and grace of Jesus. But there's not the, the, Those aren't the only reasons he's writing this letter. He's also writing this letter because he knows that the truths of Christ are truths that make up the DNA of the believer. And that in receiving them, we are coming into the truest version of ourselves, Christians, little Christs. 1 John 2, verse 21, we read, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. This seems strange. Again, John says, I'm telling you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know already. 
I'm not telling you things that you've never heard. I'm saying the things that you already know. Well, then why write it all? Because Christ who satisfies also makes us hungry. Christ who satisfies our every hunger makes us hunger and thirst for more of himself. The familiarity of spiritual things does not breed contempt, but further appreciation and appetite. John further explains this in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. John is reminding the church of the basics. Return to the simple truths of Jesus. Little children, love one another. The love of God, the glory of Christ. The, the deity and humanity of Jesus, these truths that the church was founded on, these things will make you grow in Christ. And the church is often in need of reminding. We are often in need of reminding. And John says, this isn't new for you, but you need it anyway. In the same way that we have habits that keep you alive, right? You eat food every day. You drink water every day. You don't relearn those things, but if you forget them, you die. John is saying, I'm telling you the things that you know now keep on knowing it. If you think this redundancy is unnecessary, let, re let me remind you of where John is as he's writing this and where he is later in life. John spent many of his years in Ephesus, serving the church there. If this was a circular letter like many of the apostles' letters, then Ephesus would have received this address uh, most assume actually that John was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter, so it was probably preached as a sermon first and then sent out. A few short years after writing this letter, John would be exiled to Patmos, where he would receive the visions recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And there, Jesus sends his first message back to John's home church in Ephesus. John's favorite church, the church where he's from. And, and Jesus says, this is a paraphrase, says, you're doing great, you're active, you're focusing on the truth, you're keeping the heretics out, but Revelation 2 verse 4 says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Which is the one thing John told him not to forget. Remember, therefore, not learn, but remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. This is John's church. So John writes to believers saying, I'm writing you the same things, the same truths that you already know because you need them because if you forget, it's deadly. Perhaps he already saw the dangers of forgetting the basics. These aren't the only reasons that John wrote this letter. One more I'll mention, and that's in chapter 5, verse 13. Really, it's, it's two reasons in one verse. But here they are. It says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John wrote a whole book for one reason, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his gospel. He, he said it over and over again. I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now he's saying, I'm writing to you so that you can continue to believe in those things that you believed in. And now he adds to this encouragement a, a blessed assurance I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants Christians to have confidence in their heavenly home. This isn't an aimless life. We're running a race. There's a finish line. He wants to know that your seat is already reserved, the one that he tried to get earlier. John wants, to, wants us to know where we're going. 
This is important that he says this because there's going to be places in this letter where even the most saintly among you may be faced with some self-examination that will make you uncomfortable. But John wants Christians to know that they are held securely by the one who is mighty to save. John knows what it's like to be held onto by a strong savior. He knows what it's like to be changed from who he was to who he's becoming. He's aged a whole lot since his fishing days, since the days when he wanted to burn up Samaritans. He's changed his focus, or rather he has had his focus changed. And, and the thing that changed him is simply this, it's an ongoing encounter with Jesus. This had changed his life completely. It seems like it's all he could think about. And he's writing to the church, and, and now we as, as uh, you know, generations down the road, children of this church, we say we, he's talking about the things that we've seen, that we've heard, that we've touched. If you are a Christian, it is because Christ has come to you. Christ has come to you and changed you. He's saying, I'm writing to you the things that you have known about your salvation. And I'm declaring to you the things that are true about Christ, the one who saved you, so that you can have fellowship with us, with him, and that your joy may be full. This Nearing the end of his life, John is only thinking about this. He's thinking about how he can draw Christians into the fullness of this fellowship that he had enjoyed, bringing them to the fullness of joy, leading them to the beauty of sanctification, where sins that ensnare are left behind, where we grow in the grace that saved us, where we come into the assurance of our salvation as we continue to grow in our first love, continually believing that which we believe. I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. And I want you to know that you are here today in order to believe these things. Um, and, and that goes for Christian or otherwise. You are here in order to believe and keep on believing these things because as we look to the Christ who saves, Jesus who saves, and, and we look to him to, to see him, to hear him, to, to handle him, we are drawn into fellowship with God himself and there is joy there that each one of you should have. There is joy with your name on it for you to receive. It exists in the presence of God. Let us go to him now. Pray with me, please. Jesus, by your grace, by your blood, we come into your presence. That veil has been torn. That veil that was your flesh we come into the very presence of God to say thank you more, please. <laughs> to say that we know there's no joy except that joy that is in your presence, so we want some of that. We come to you desiring, hungry for the, the fellowship that you offer us. We thank you for making us friends and family with you, Jesus. Let us experience the realities of this fellowship. Holy Spirit, do your work in every heart here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.